0: favorite subject, Trump, America, and the world. Please welcome Professor Stephen Cockin.
1: Thank, you. Thank you. Oops. There we go. Uh, great to be back. Thanks to Amanda for another wonderful program and for a, a wonderful space on the program. Very grateful. This is a subject which I uh, approach with trepidation. What am I going to tell you that you don't already know, haven't already heard, are not already completely sick of, are not totally exhausted and or depressed, and yet you're still glued to the subject somehow. And so that's his secret. His secret is we do nothing but talk about him, no matter what whether good, bad, always obsessing about him. He's always the center of our attention. So I'm going to do something even crazier, I hope. I'm going to give a lecture about him where we're not even going to talk about him very much. I know. (laughs) I know. It doesn't sound like it's going to work, and it might not. But if you don't take any risks, as they say, you have no money in biotech. Okay. Excuse me, the French have five or 10 euros in biotech, we heard yesterday. (laughs) If I had five or 10 euros, I would put them in biotech. But I have TIA CREF. Okay. So this is kind of what it feels like. One day this joker popped out of the box and we're still with him, right? But as I said, we're gonna try to tell a slightly different story today, so here we go. Let's give the opening takeaway, which is, as you know, American foreign policy went wrong, and it went wrong under Democrats and Republicans and everything else. The elites believed that there was a single process called globalization and that it was making the world pretty much the same. Everyone or everyone should be becoming Western. Of course, globalization did the opposite. It accentuated difference. The same thing it had done the first time in the period of the 1870s, through the Great Depression before globalization was temporarily reversed. It had also accentuated difference back then. Back then, the consequences were significantly worse. They were world wars. The population or the populism was significantly worse. It was fascism, Nazism, and communism. The backlash against immigration was significantly worse. And I could go on. Okay, so pursuing this one-worldism abroad, this universalism, the idea that U.S. values and institutions were appropriate for the whole world and should spread, and that's what people wanted. In pursuing that, the elites discovered that lo and behold, China was still wanting to be China, and Russia was still Russia, and et cetera, et cetera. Iran, and fill in the blank. So this was deeply disillusioning discovery. Another way to put it is that elites imagined that we were in the post-1989 world, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the unification of Germany, the collapse of Soviet Union, or the reduction in Russian power is actually what happened. But in fact, we were in the post-79 world. What's the post-79 world? Deng Xiaoping, and China, and its rise, which would follow the Islamic Islamist revolution in Iran, which was a form of uh, radical Islamism that would spread globally, including through Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion in Afghanistan in 79, also. In addition, the Pope, John Paul II, the Polish Pope, whose very well known in this room, but we forget that the thrust of his papacy was a return to traditional values and social conservatism. Yes. And so we could go on and we could go on, but it's the post-79 world that we're living in much more than the post-89 world. 89 was important, German unification, the impetus to the expansion of the EU, whether you think that's a good idea or not, and as I say, the the collapse of the Soviet Union or reduction in Russian power. But 79 is really the world we're living in, right? Okay. One could talk much more about this. These are the basic points I'm gonna end up with, and now I'm gonna take you through the story. So what we had after 89 was Clinton and his team which made its main foreign policy goal or one of its goals transforming the Soviet Union into free market democracies we then had the Bush administration a different end of the political uh, spectrum transform the Middle East in the same way vision that spreading US values and institutions we had many administrations Democrat and Republican make China more like America via economic integration, sometimes known in the silly phrase, Camerica or China-America. Okay, so all these projects more or less failed. They all failed. Yes, they did. And of course, the elites were held accountable. Actually, no. They weren't held accountable for their failures. Instead, they got rich in the process of enacting these failures. They became consultants, they moved from government to private industry, or vice versa, and they did extremely well while all of their projects failed. Like I said, we're not gonna talk about them. We're not gonna even maybe mention him, but this is what we're gonna talk about. There was some elite self-enrichment I don't know if you noticed. (laughs) Uh, We're public servants, uh, but we moved to the private sector. We're still serving the larger cause, which is spreading markets and spreading democracy. That was the ideology I remember being there, watching them. And then when private sector people moved into government, they nonetheless kept also the same ideology, the larger cause, we're spreading markets, we're spreading democracy, we're spreading American values, we're spreading American institutions, and so yes, we're making the world better while we're lining our pockets. The Clintons were some of the biggest self enrichers, and their Clinton Global Initiative has got to be one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But even the Obamas, the most, the cleanest administration that the US has had in a very long time. They did government service and they came out the other end and they're looking at townhouses for 15 and 25 million dollars. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that, you say. Maybe it's completely legal, except if you were on the other end of their policies and your income maybe didn't rise as a result of government service to 15 to 25 million. And to repeat, the Obama administration was one of the cleanest administrations we had. Certainly compared to the Clintons. In fact, there was only one high-level member of the Obama administration who was investigated. Who was that? Hillary Clinton. Okay, so here comes somebody else, and he's not waiting till you move in and out of office. They're just going to enrich while they're in office. What the hell? Okay. And additionally... You know, they're not gonna make a big fuss about how they're self-righteously transforming the world. They're doing good. They're just lining in their pockets without the self-righteousness. So there we are. Accountability, we love that word. Every time Trump does something, the establishment goes crazy. Oh, we're in uncharted territory. Oh, This is unprecedented, every single time. Did Trump do the second Iraq war of 2003? I don't think it was him. Did he do the global financial crisis? I don't think it was Trump, and I don't think it was Stephen Moore, and I don't think it was Herman Cain, and all the other ignoramuses that he nominated for the Fed board that didn't get through. I think it was the geniuses at the Fed, not the ones that didn't make it. Somebody did something, that's my feeling. Did Trump create the Euro? Was that his genius move? Without the fiscal union, that would happen at some point, but didn't happen yet, and doesn't look like it's gonna happen, and so we're stuck. I don't think that was him. Did he do Libya, Syria? North Korea, Ukraine, I mean, where's Trump? Yep, okay. So then we had two years of Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. You know where that went? And now we're gonna have maybe two years of Schiff, Schiff, Schiff at the guy who's leading the so-called impeachment inquiry, which hasn't been voted yet by Congress. So you ask yourself, you know, how did we get into this situation? And the answer is something happened before Trump and something enabled Trump to get into the position he got in. And Trump is as self-dealing, as disgraceful, as fill-in-the-blank we see him to be every single day. So none of this is meant to excuse any behavior that's absolutely inexcusable. These are just some facts that we tend to forget. Now, the Ukraine peace. let's remember what happened. The Mueller report concluded, and I wrote a study of the Mueller report because I'm actually one of the people in the room who's read the Mueller report. I published it in Foreign Affairs. That Trump didn't manage to commit the crimes that he was trying to commit because his staff kept blocking him from doing so. They kept stealing the papers off his desk or forgetting to implement his orders or saying they would do it and then not doing it. And then he would say two weeks later, what happened? Did did we do it? And they say, yeah, we're we're working on it. (laughs) Right? So he certainly did a lot of stuff. He managed to fire James Comey. That was a brilliant move on his part. That's how he got the investigation on himself. He separated the migrant children from their families at the border, one of his more infamous acts. He imposed the China tariff. But if you actually look at Trump's policies, most of them were watered down by the staff or even subverted, that is, sabotaged by his staff. Loyal staff that he had appointed saved him from committing Uh, easily identifiable crimes. Now, you can argue that he still crossed the line. That would be a valid point of view. I'm not making that point that he's innocent. Far from it. I'm just saying that through the Russia stuff, he was partly subverted by his own people. But on the Ukrainian stuff, no. He wasn't subverted by his own people. They didn't take the paperwork off his desk. They didn't hide the decrees. They didn't water them down or slow walk them. They enacted them with gusto, the ignoramuses. And that includes, for example, Giuliani, who's not even in the government but somehow was enacting Trump's wishes in foreign policy. So now he's in much bigger trouble because these bimbos here, Giuliani, this Republican bag man, the Kansas um, uh, Tea Party congressman, another Tea Party congressman, et cetera, they all did it. He said, we're gonna do this, we're gonna withhold the aid, we're gonna demand that they investigate Biden. They, They enacted that. So now it looks much worse. That's the difference between the Russia stuff and the Ukraine stuff. Trump is not the difference, but the staff, they are the difference. So that's where he is now. So now, as I said, we're gonna get a year of shift, 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 and Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Whether that's good or bad for the country is a, ser- is a separate question. All right, now we have the fake versus real point. What's fake and what's real? So on the campaign trail, come Trump, he called out the corruption and the self-dealing of the establishment. He campaigned on this, and it resonated. I wonder why it resonated. Maybe because it wasn't fake. Maybe because it was real. Does that mean that Trump is less corrupt? No. Does that mean that Trump is offering any solutions to the problem? No. But does that mean that Trump was able to pinpoint some deep structural issues that people were rightfully angry about? Oh, yeah. And by the way, they're still there those issues. Okay. Yes, the Brexit was mendacious. We we lived through that campaign. Yes, everything about Trump is mendacious. He can't not tell a lie, no matter what it is, right? (laughs) And And yet, both Brexit and Trump, I would argue, revealed a lot about the countries in which they happened. A lot of people who felt they didn't have a voice, or nobody was paying attention to them, or they weren't represented in the political system, they were, quote, discovered the same way that short sellers do price discovery. So yes, the politics are fake, but the sentiments are real. That's a very important point. And they're all still there. And you can argue that the people are deluded, that they're mistaken that they're bigots, you can make all sorts of arguments about it, but there are 63 million people who voted for Trump and they're American citizens. So, either we're gonna say they're not part of the country and they don't count, or we're gonna figure out how to address them. Now, let's remember that Trump did many stupid things like immediately cancel the Trans-Pacific Partnership, That was idiotic, and he came to discover that it was a mistake later on when he briefly tried to revive it. But who denounced TPP on the campaign trail? Hillary Clinton, one of the authors of it, began to denounce it. And where was the ratification possibility in the Congress? There was no ratification possibility. So Trump did a really bad and stupid thing, but once again. It's not clear to me that if Hillary Clinton had been elected, and she almost was, that we would have got TPP either. So even smart policy was in trouble before Trump, because the system wasn't working. All right. So I hope I've made a point, and now I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to build on this point. I'm going to switch gears. So this is the actual story that I'd like to now go into more depth in. And this is the story about what happened when Obama handed off to Trump. He didn't hand off what you might call an easy or pretty situation. He handed off one mess after another, some of which Obama had worsened, some of which Obama had created, most of which Obama had inherited and couldn't, and tried to fix but couldn't fix. This is the box that keeps getting handed off from one president to the next, and whoever's president in 2020, if the party switch, they're gonna get this box and more from Trump. So what is Trump's foreign policy? Policy is a, a, a word maybe um, a little bit strong to be used for the chaos and the mismanagement and the incompetence of this administration. It's more instinct than it is policy, but nonetheless, what is it? Well, first, let's remember Obama's foreign policy reduce US commitments in the world because we're overstretched, get allies to do more, and cut some deals, right, to lessen tensions with your adversaries. All right, that's Obama. What's Trump's foreign policy? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's chaotic. The sensibilities are very different. Obama was a well-spoken, cosmopolitan, highly educated, smooth as silk person. Uh, Trump is not that kind of person. So sensibility, style, and and, um, governance structures, they're different. But the aims are the same. And that should tell you that there's a larger structural process at work here if two people so very different can have the same foreign policy. But Obama failed. He couldn't reduce U.S. commitments abroad. He couldn't get the allies to do more. And he couldn't cut lasting deals with our adversaries. Why? Because the establishment fought him tooth and nail. And also because events in the world kept popping up, which he didn't want to confront necessarily, but confronted him. Same exact situation with Trump. He wants to pull out of some place, he wants to do something, and the establishment goes crazy against him. Just like we see this morning over the Syria stuff. Okay. So, remember Obama's deal? This is this that Iran nuclear deal, painstakingly negotiated, and here's a cartoon making fun of the deal, you know, pigs fly. Doesn't happen very often, right? Miracle of diplomacy. And here's the Republicans, GOP, grand old party, shooting down the pig that's flying. So Obama tried to cut a deal with an adversary to reduce tensions and therefore reduce American commitments we don't need yet another war in the Middle East, let's do a deal with Iran. And of course, that deal was undone. Remember, Obama never signed a treaty and didn't therefore submit it for ratification to the Senate because he couldn't have, they wouldn't have gone for it. Okay, so here's Trump. Oh, you know, these Iranians, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna stop them from getting a bomb. And so here's your friendly North Korean uh, uh, dictator, Right, who's, who, unlike Iran, already actually has bombs. So, once again, making fun of Trump, so he is making fun of Obama, who tried to do a deal with Iran, now Trump confronting Iran, right, and North Korea whistling away with their bomb. Right, so these are the kind of cartoons that you see when you try to do a deal with your adversaries. All right. So, here's the feeling and you can understand where this feeling comes from, that we can't handle this anymore, that we have too many burdens, that it feels too heavy and we need to cut back. We need to cut back because we've made a lot of mistakes, most of which were avoidable, not all of them, but most of which were avoidable. Now, you might say that other people are stepping up, depends on your politics here, but for me, Right. This encapsulates a story that transcends political party and transcends any one particular administration. That's the real story. That's how Obama and Trump could end up with similar foreign policy aims, unfortunately, each of which is failing. All right. Now, let's remember U.S. policy in the Middle East just because We sometimes forget, a little bit simplified, but we had Afghanistan. We bombed, we invaded, we occupied. How'd it work? How would you rate that investment? Okay, fine, Iraq. We bombed, we invaded, we occupied. How'd that work out? Okay, Libya. We bombed, we did not invade and we did not occupy. How did the Libya one work out for you? Syria. Didn't bomb, didn't invade, didn't occupy. So Campbell, tell me, which one of those four models is the right model? Right choice, yes? Exactly. So there you go. That's U.S.-Middle Eastern policy, and you got to say that it's not clear that we know what we're doing. <coughs> now... The only people who've paid a price for this are the people who live in these countries, for the most part, as well as the American families and our allies, servicemen and servicewomen who have served there, and some of whom have lost their lives. But those people who decided this stuff, they paid no price. They get to write memoirs and get seven-figure book advances and then go give speeches on the consulting circuit, not at an august... uh, company like this, they wouldn't be invited to make a speech, unaccountably. Okay. By the way, Trump changed the Syria policy. He decided to bomb because Xi Jinping was having chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago, and Trump impressed him by bombing Syria while he was eating the chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago. But then now Trump wants to abandon Syria, as he tweeted. But anyway, it didn't work, it's not working, no one held accountable. So Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. expenditures on the war on terrorism since 9-11, what do you think they have been? Yep, that's it. What could you do with 5.6 trillion? We heard yesterday that 50 billion was U.S. expenditure on healthcare research. With all the issues that we have, from cancer on to everything else, we're spending $50 billion as a government on cancer and other research, and there we have U.S. expenditures, war on terrorism. So where does this guy come from, huh? I wonder where. 7,000 Americans killed combined, approximately. The number is not exact, but the figure. 460,000 Iraqi deaths, more than 100,000 Afghani deaths. Those are big numbers in addition to the expenditures, right? We've got the Syria deaths. We've got the Yemeni deaths. We don't even have time to talk about these colossal humanitarian catastrophes and what role we might have played or failed to play in all of them, right? So there's a bitter lesson. You go out there because you think you're gonna fix things and make them better. And of course, you might make them worse. That's called US foreign policy. And that's not just Trump. That's Samantha Power and Susan Rice, right? That's Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. They're all in that basket together. And they're all at liberty today. And they're not being impeached or investigated. What's this forever war logic? How do we get involved in this in the first place? Well, there's a very strong logic that keeps putting us in these forever wars. It goes something like this. If we show, quote, weakness, we're just provoking the enemy to act because the enemy thinks if we don't use military force against the enemy, then they'll just get away with it and they're encouraged to do more. So, every time we fail to strike, we're provoking them. We're provoking more wars, actually, rather than fixing the problem. That's the logic. How this logic people could believe this, I don't know, but they do. Okay. And here's another beauty if we don't battle them over there, we'll end up battling them over here, like, for example, here at Harvard Medical School. A whole bunch of people from, for example, a province you've never heard of who are 17, 18, and 19 years old will somehow get on planes and invade Harvard Medical School and kill us all. Yes, this is the logic. Oh, by the way, the Allies, they can't defend themselves. Saudi Arabia has the third largest defense budget in the world. But the U.S. is the one that has to, quote, stop Iran, not the Saudis. And, of course, there are never opportunity costs. We can do everything and anything and never pay a price, never get distracted, never lose money for schools or medical research or anything else. So this is the forever war logic that you hear in the establishment, and I hear it just about every day because I mingle with such people. Okay, so let's go squander US blood and treasure. Let's squander our reputation. Let's turn public opinion inward. Hey, let's elect Donald Trump. Okay, a little bit of detail, right? We have these proxy wars between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iraq is a mess. Yemen, as we said, was even worse. Syria, you know all about, right? There's a kind of Shia arc uh, supported by Iran, the dark green, and then there's a Sunni Muslim arc supported by the Saudis, the lighter green. Okay. Then we had the Iranians put uh, explosives. They row up these little, uh, w- w- they, they motor up with these motorboats to these tankers, and then they stick a mine on the side of the tanker, and they blow it up. And then they disappear again because the Straits of Hormuz are just a very narrow channel through which the tankers have to pass, and the Iranians have boats on either side. So they did this, and then they did this. They used missiles and drones to blow up that facility in Saudi Arabia that processes 5% of global oil. The evidence is overwhelming that the Iranians did this. So now we have the hysteria about Trump over this, these incidents, that it's Trump's fault and that Trump failed to do the right thing about it. So let's see if the press is good, let's see if CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post are correct about this. I know you're not gonna believe me. Trump was gonna retaliate when they shot down a US drone and then at the very last second he called off the military strike and moreover, He announced that he called off the military strike, making himself, quote, look weak. Remember that incident? And the condemnation became hysterical. Surrender, weakness, and all the other great words of forever war. Well, guess what? Trump is continuing his maximum pressure campaign on Iran. And US sanctions have cut Iran's oil exports by 90%. Moreover, the Chinese just canceled their biggest oil deal in Iran because they don't want to fall under U.S. sanctions. U.S. is too big a market. So the Chinese who are dependent on Iranian oil, unlike the U.S., are buckling under to Trump on Iran. And Iran is now has no money. Iran's GDP may shrink 9% this year, and people are fleeing the cities because they lost their jobs, or there's no access to food and inflation has ramped up. So you can say that Trump, yeah, he didn't do the military strike, but look at this stuff. Who needs a military strike or a war when you can bring them to their knees and maybe modify their behavior that way. So here's the, uh, the o- Obama's nuclear deal. Here's Iran's oil output. Was it a good deal or a bad deal? I don't know, I'm just showing you the oil output. And now here's Trump. And that's only March 2019. That little puppy is going way down. Just collapsing. It's gone from this To 200,000 barrels a day since Trump. Look at this. So this thing just fell right off the chart. How about that? Here's GDP, right? Economic growth in Iran. Look what Trump is doing to them. Once again, rightly or wrongly, but he doesn't do the military strike and he's weak. He's surrendering. He's not leading. Just like they said of Obama. Okay. Here's the top defense budgets. You, of course, know that Saudi is number three with a bigger military budget than Russia. You hear this every day on CNN, I'm sure, where they give you all those facts rather than commentary. <laughs> okay, so let's get beyond the hysteria. Trump decided there's no more security blanket for Saudi, and we oh, he's in the pocket of the king, he loves the crown prince, he apologized for the dismemberment that the Crown Prince, according to the CIA, ordered, right, of the American green card holder, journalist, Khashoggi. But look what Trump said. This was an attack on Saudi, and it wasn't an attack on us. When they struck that facility that processes 5% of global oil, how do you like that? So, guess what? Iran is now overextended with unsustainable costs, on a knife edge, and can't go forward with the policies they've had to cause trouble all up and down the region. Trump's got them over a barrel. And the Saudi regime knows that it's one war away from internal collapse. And so guess what? The Saudis and the Iranians made a peace gesture to each other. Trump put his boot on the neck of the Iranian regime, and he pulled the security blanket from the Saudis instead of a blanket guarantee. As the, uh, the Saudis like to say, you know, we'll fight Iran to the last drop of American blood. Right, That's the Saudi slogan. And Trump just took that away. And now both Iran and the Saudis are talking to each other because they can't afford the price of their own policies. Yep. Yet, I don't know, maybe you saw all of this on cable, or maybe cable television, or maybe you didn't. Let's focus attention. We're almost done. Domestic energy production in the US, as you know, has skyrocketed. So that Middle Eastern oil doesn't even come to the US anymore. We're protecting those oil lanes so that that oil can get to China. Iran's economy, which happens to be 120 at the size of China. How much attention would you focus on Iran compared to China? Iran's military budget. Remember that chart of military budgets, the top 10? Let's go back to that for one second. I don't know if I can make it all the way back. I'm not as dexterous as I used to be. There we go. You see Iran's military budget? No. How come you don't see it? They don't have one. They don't have an army. They got those mines. They got those motorboats in the Strait of Hormuz that they can put. They got some drones and missiles. Yeah, we, that's true. But if in an actual war, they got nothing. Yeah, okay. All right, we're almost done, as I said. So... I'm not sure I'd be focusing attention on Iran. I might say that the Saudis and the Iranians got to work this out themselves. I might apply pressure to both, which in one case is sanctions, and the other case is withdrawing the U.S. security guarantee for just for anything, for everything and anything, maybe not for certain things we want to keep it for. All right. So Iran can menace its neighbors, but of course China has global reach. Right? Asia's already 50% almost of the global economy, and it's gonna be a lot more than that right? the next time and the next time and the next time Amanda puts together another great program. Okay, let's finish up. Trump-China Trump, China policy. Now, is Trump a genius with the tariffs? Are the tariffs uh, gonna, gonna deliver us to a better place? Well, obviously, no. They're not gonna deliver us to a better place but was the relationship dysfunctional and not working for the US? Correct, it was. Did somebody need to stand up to China and rebalance the relationship? Yes. Did Trump do that? Yes. Did he do it in a sophisticated fashion where you're gonna get to a better place? No, he's Trump. Right? He's gonna cut this rope And then we're going to see what happens. He's going down with the panda, right? The genius. But nonetheless, he did the right thing in changing across the US the conversation about China. Incredible. All right. George W. Bush. I know that it's hard to imagine, but some of you are experiencing nostalgia now (laughs) for George W. Bush, right, Mary? And you never would have predicted that at the time, would you, Mary? I don't know. Anyway, maybe you would have because you're smart. George W. Bush on the campaign trail, guess what he said? Yeah, he said China's a strategic competitor in the 2000 campaign. Right? Look at this. He's inaugurated. When a TV vendor asks if we're going to defend Taiwan, he says, yeah. We're gonna defend Taiwan and China must understand that. George W. Bush standing up to China, April 2001, right? He's inaugurated in January 2001. Bush's aides, you know, they then went after him. And did they say he misspoke? No, they said rebalancing away from Beijing back toward Taiwan, can you imagine? And then what happened? September 11th, 2001. And then $5.6 trillion later, $5.6 trillion forever wars and everything else later, now we have Trump doing some of the same things. Now, China is an amazing story, as you know. If you're invested in China, if you've been to China, it's breathtaking what they've achieved. However, China is not the giant that we think it is. So here's the Chinese economy, and here's the US economy. Moreover, here's the Japanese economy, and here's the European economy, and here's our friends, Australia, and here's Mexico and Canada, which are integrated fully into the US economy, right? And if you add up the US and its allies, South Korea, Japan, Europe, Canada, Mexico, Australia, it's overwhelming compared to the Chinese economy. And that's the view from China, as it were. They actually know this fact. They know that the United States is still in the driver's seat and that if the United States combined with its allies in policies to modify Chinese behavior, rather than cut that rope and go down with the panda, but do something collaborative and intelligent, that the Chinese would have to modify their behavior or lose out. Okay. Yes, the China piece has grown. That's that burgundy color. So that's the size, the proportion of the global economy that China represents 2024, for sure. It's grown massively over that period of time. But once again, U.S., Europe, and Japan are still very, very formidable. And other advanced countries, which are mostly allied with the U.S., added together, are still a much bigger piece than the China piece. The China piece is an amazing story to repeat, it looks really big, but it's not this insurmountable threat. It is instead something which needs to be dealt with and hasn't been dealt with up till now. Okay, so let's conclude. Maybe this hasn't worked, but this is what I've tried to say today. There was a massive loss of confidence among American elites because they were wrong. They assumed that this globalization was the spread of American-style values, institutions, free markets, and democracy, that it was one process for the whole world, and it was uniting the whole world, and they were wrong. They were completely wrong. And they have now lost confidence because it's been shown that it didn't work. Never mind that they were partly right, and Eastern Europe, for example, which was freed from communism, was incorporated into the Western sphere of influence, into the EU and NATO. Yes, that happened, and it was a good thing. Never mind that other countries around the world got rich in large part because the US created a system that could enable that, like India and Brazil, and of course China. Nonetheless, there's been this loss of confidence among the elites and now their memoirs are coming and coming and choking our bookstores and our airports about their loss of confidence. But a loss of confidence among people who make mistakes is not a systemic crisis. It's just a lack of accountability. The the notion that the US is in decline is complete bunk. It's one of the most idiotic things that you hear relentlessly on cable television. Let's remember, the US military, whose military would you trade that for? The US economy, whose economy would you trade, would you take instead of the US one? US universities, who'd you trade us for? The dollar, the allies, 70 plus allies, who would you trade? Any of this, who's got any of this? Nobody's got any of this except the US. Nobody in history has ever had anything like this except the US and you can degrade this, right? You can uh, make your allies angry. You can hurt, damage your universities with bad policies. You can send the US military into places where it can't fix things. You could damage the US economy with all sorts of ridiculous policies, which are now uh, quite prominent on the campaign trail. But you cannot eliminate any of this, nor would you trade any of this for what China has. Moreover, and here's the biggest one, the political class has degraded, not just in the US, but globally. But US institutions are a lot stronger than people think. You know what? Trump is being investigated. Yeah. And so my conclusion is that the loss of confidence because these people were wrong doesn't equate to US decline. And China is a challenge as well as an opportunity, but not something which is displacing the United States. We're gonna have a whole China panel which will go into greater depth on that. Okay, thank you for your attention.
0: Uh-huh. Thank, you. Thank you, Stephen. That's all very clear. Unfortunately, there's no time for questions. We needed to move on. So, please put your hands up. That's a joke. It's a joke.
1: I came in with time with questions. I know. We started late, and I still came in with time.
0: Okay, who's first? <laughs> Please just take the mic and announce your name and organization. Bill, firstly, then we'll come to table eight. Hi, Bill Lee, New York Presbyterian Hospital Investment Office. Stephen, when we, are, when, if you look to the future, um, what do you, what's your view on the uh, concept of liberalism versus the alternative, in uh, you know, with liberalism, of course, with a small L.
1: So the idea of rule of law, separation of powers, and open dynamic markets without monopolies, that idea is very powerful uh, emotionally, and it also works in practice. And we are all living examples and beneficiaries of it. But it needs to be constantly cultivated like a garden, because that open, free, dynamic economy you get concentrations of power. And those concentrations of power claim to be innovating, and they choke off innovation. So you need to tend the garden of these wonderful arrangements that you have. If you fail to do that, you end up with a gigantic advertising company that's monopolizing the advertising market, claiming to be a high-tech company, and destroying any search engines that are superior to it in the cradle strangling them in the cradle, but claiming to be innovative, right? You get stuff like that. You get stuff like that, which is fundamentally evil or inimical to the liberalism, the classical tradition of uh, open and dynamic, non-monopolistic markets, rule of law, and democracy. But you can mess up. You can tilt the system all the way to one side so that certain people are privatizing the benefits, and socializing the costs. Once again, that's a power question, and that's why we have corrective mechanisms known as elections. So there's all sorts of tools to cultivate the garden, but the garden can grow weeds, the garden can grow plants that are inimical to the survival of other plants in the garden. There's no system which is superior and can defeat it from the outside. It can, however, corrode from the inside if it's not properly tended. That's called Trump, and Trump is a symptom of the untended garden that we've all seen, but the garden is still there, those instruments are still there, and they're available for us to fix things. It's not about getting rid of Trump, It's about where did he come from in the first place? And so the Chinese have no answer for this. They don't have a superior governance model and they are frightened, as you'll hear, even of their own population despite having great repressive mechanisms. So what
2: alternative is that?
0: We have 10 minutes to go, table eight, then to table two.
2: Uh, Stephen, thank you so very much um, for a very different lens on this. I'll cheat and ask two questions, but you can choose to answer one of them. Can you announce like... who you are, please? And Sorry, for... yes. Niti Bala-Johnson, Liberty Mutual Investments. Um, first question, do you think this move towards ESG and corporate social responsibility is a sign that governments have therefore failed on the accountability and corporates are being asked to step up, and that's really one of the symptoms of it, In um, your take on that? And the second question is... One of the unique things, at least I think about China, is that unlike, say, Russia in the past, or Germany, is we trade with them, and we have this sort of Cold War aspect with them. How do you think this plays out over time? Because I don't think the US has had a model for such an economically integrated uh, economy before.
1: Thank you, Nita. I'm gonna leave the China for our China panel, which is coming up shortly and is an excellent question and I think they'll address it. But just on things like ESG and the other issues that are well ventilated at this conference and other places. So governments cannot achieve the vision in reality that people have for them. And joining the Paris Accords and leaving the Paris Accords has very little impact, very almost no impact whatsoever On the behavior of the private sector, which of course is the only place you could solve these colossal problems we have, right? A new energy regime begins with a brand new grid, and it begins with investment up front, and it begins with companies able to deliver services, right? Why is ExxonMobil so successful? Because they're the best operating company by far in the energy space. So, you got to be X and mobile in the private sector to be X and mobile. And government can provide some infrastructure there, but you can't solve those problems without the private sector. Your capital is invested not in government, but in private sector, in private enterprise. That doesn't mean the government has to block you all the time. If it just didn't block you, that would be helpful. Right? So, I think most of our aspirations need to be tied to private sector, and the global energy regime is already shifting, but it's hitting its limits because there's a lot of stuff that, that you understand. Um, we got one more, or we're
0: done? You know, we've got a couple more, actually. Joel from Bridgewater, table number two, and then to you, Olivia.
2: So you highlighted, rightfully so, that the bombs and the occupation haven't worked and a shift to sort of sanctions in a place like Venezuela or Iran, and you can think about sort of the humanitarian crisis that comes out of that. Will we really get the change that we want, or do you just create a a vacuum that creates more chaos to deal with?
1: So we have two approaches in American foreign policy. One is called strength or the hawk approach. That's where you beat your chest and then you do some harsh things to people. And then the other approach we have is negotiation, where you have no leverage, you haven't done anything to inflict pain, and you go into a negotiation, and it turns out you get a bad deal or you get a deal that's not advantageous. So I have this genius idea. Let's do some strong things and create leverage, and then let's negotiate and pocket some of the concessions. How about that? And so Trump, his instincts are for deal-making, but he's only a marketer. He's not a deal-maker. He's able to create the leverage like with Iran, but he can't get to a point where he can do a deal. He's in with North Korea trying to do a deal. There's no deal. He's with China trying to do a deal. There's no deal. He did a deal with Mexico and Canada, but as we know, it's a fake deal. Nothing really changed. right? So. Many uh, presidents aspire to doing deals, but they either don't uh, create the leverage on the front end or they're not good enough deal makers. So it would be good to invest in the State Department and have a State Department again. Uh, Not that long ago we had one. And to create the leverage on the front end, but to have the negotiating strategy from the beginning. So, do you say to the Chinese that you're stealing and you're you're thieves and you're horrible, and you say it publicly at a press conference, or do you create some leverage and privately behind the scenes try to find a way for them to save face but to make some concessions at the same time? Right? I mean, deal making is something this room does every single day and fully understands and can be done in politics also.
0: Stephen. Um Amanda has given us permission to extend this session by a few minutes, and we've got a couple of interesting dynamics we want to throw in here. Firstly, Olivia from the French Sovereign Wealth Fund on 2, and then we're going to go to CIC from China on Table 10. Um, Stephen, if I may, it's a maintenance question on the speech you gave us last year at Stanford about China and Taiwan. Um, In light of the developments in Hong Kong, how would you update your analysis on the the situation, China, Taiwan? If the question is to be addressed in the following panel, then my question self-destructs and I will not take offense.
1: I'll I'll address, that's an excellent question and I'll be held accountable by addressing that question during the China panel, if there's room. Thank you for that.
0: Okay, and we're gonna go to final comments, questions. Uh, If you can introduce yourself, please. Table 10.
1: If I don't take the mic off at some point, it just keeps going. So I'm gonna to start to take uh, it off.
3: Um, my name is Rosalin Zhang. I'm from China Investment uh, Corporation. Yeah. So uh, full disclosure, I'm Chinese. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, uh, you can answer uh, later on the channel panel. My question is, why uh, U.S. has to view China as a threat? Uh, if history can shed any light on the present or future. If you look at history between US and China, um, when first um, after a brutal um, independence war, like a, between US and uh, Britain, when you actually finally gained independence after battle with uh, uh, Britain, actually at that time, US sent out ships to China to establish the trade relationship because you cannot really do anything with UK, right? So U.S. at that time actually reached out to China and China opened up and we did a trade with the U.S. at that time. That's at the inception of U.S. as a nation. And then if we look back before the, uh, during the second World War, and the U.S. sent your airplane, airplanes fight side by side with the Chinese to with fight against the Japanese invasion um, in China. So if you look at the history actually, why then, um, uh, fast, fast forward, move forward to today, you view China necessarily have to be as a threat. Why can't we, uh, like, okay, yes. That's a very good question,
1: mm-hmm. uh, very good points, and mm-hmm. we need to address that, but I'm going to let our uh, king of uh, sinology here mm-hmm. at Harvard and, and uh, dean of the whole field answer that question in okay. his panel. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your okay. attention, and I apologize for going over.